felt I had to just get started and trust the Lord to see how that worked out and uh, felt the Lord really helped me to preach down at the end of verse 17 and come to conclusion there, which leaves us with the last third of this chapter today. Remember this letter is written to Hebrew Christians, people from the, a Jewish background who are now believers in Jesus Messiah. There's a great persecution of the church starting in the Roman Empire through Nero and they are being tempted to deny Jesus and revert to the legal protection that Judaism would give them, to go back under the law and deny Jesus. So if you don't keep hold to that background of this letter, then some of the things in the letter sound very strange, very harsh. That's what's going on. All right? We need to understand the scriptures in that context and then apply the teaching to our conscience. Remember, when we approach the Bible, we say, what did this mean to them then, and how does that work for us now? Because yeah. not every situation is the same. We don't have uh, uh, masters and slaves in the way they did then in our society. So, you know, we have to understand that that, that is employees and employees, and, and those, who have those who have authority and those who are under authority in a working environment. So today we come to a tale of two mountains. All right? So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, inspirer, giver of scripture, please help us to understand it and apply it to our hearts today. For these are not just issues of literature and interpretation and history and context. These are the words of the living God to guard us and to guide us in this life. So we submit our hearts to your truth today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul, because I believe that this letter is Pauline, not that he necessarily wrote it himself, but that he dictated it and someone wrote it down, uh, uses two mountains now to illustrate the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, law and grace. In Galatians 4, he does the same thing. But he uses two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, and then Sinai and Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem. I don't have time to go there this morning, but let's read it through. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. I'm talking about Sinai and the giving of the law. And uh, Sinai, I discovered in uh, my kind of looking at Google and stuff, is a very popular theme amongst Jewish painters. They like to paint this scene when God came down upon Sinai for the law to be given to Israel. The mountain was burning with fire, surrounded by darkness. Angelic trumpets were sounding louder and louder as the fiery presence of God came down upon that place. The very rocks smoked and cooked and then the voice of God came thundering from the mountain to the people of Israel. Let me say this, Sinai is not and was not a volcano. The heat and smoke was not coming up from within the ground. 
It shook and burned under the impact of God's holy presence. And if anyone, even if one of their livestock touched that mountain, they were to die. So when scripture says the mountain could be touched, there's a bit of irony there. They could touch it, it was real physical, but if they touched it, they would die. They were so afraid, with all of this going on, shocked to their souls, that they said, Moses, you go and talk to the Lord and we'll listen to you, because we can't bear to listen to him. We can't, we can't take this. Do you think that was a good deal? Not really. Not really. This was the giving of the law, the old covenant, the forming of the tribes of Israel into a nation of Israel. They were a people under the law given at Sinai. Now, I hope you know this is good news. We have not come to Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. It's too far too small, and I should have put it in the notes, but there's a nice image there of these two mountains. We have not gathered as a community to appear before God as they did at Sinai. We are not under the law given through Moses. We are under grace given through Messiah Jesus. We are gathered to the Lord under the new covenant to be his people, to be with him, around him, like a city, a community God dwells among, a worshipping society which includes the holy angels and all his redeemed people from all time. I'm going to work through these statements quickly with you. The new covenant community is like Mount Zion. It's not a place in Jerusalem. It's what that place pointed to, the heavenly throne room and temple of God. Zion in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament is a code word for God's greater house, his real city, his greater temple, which is the church of Jesus Messiah. Of course, that's not how we see the church now or yet. It's going through all sorts of upheavals, uh, the visible church of Jesus at this time. But it is how she will be in the future for him, for her bridegroom. This is not a boast about us, about what we are. It's a perfect, mature, complete picture of how the church will be for Master Jesus. The city of the living God, the one that Abraham looked for, remember? He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. We read it in Hebrews 11. We read in Hebrews 11 verse 6 that God has prepared a city for his faithful witnesses, those who have lived by faith. He's prepared a city for them. Even if they were shrugged off by the world and dismissed by the world and, and had to hide in caves and live in, 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 in animal skins, you know, and we read that in Hebrews 11. God has prepared a city for those brothers and sisters. They've got a home. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not an earthly city. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. We are not going back to Jerusalem. That era is over. We're going on to the Jerusalem which is above, which is future. It's pictured for us at the end of Revelation. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Clue? It, it's not a literal city. It's another way of describing the church. The bride of Christ. 
Oh, is this a city or a bride? Make your mind up, John. Well, it's kind of both. It's, ah. The, the pictures get blurred together. Two things at the same time. It's a city and a bride. Wow. And then there are myriads of angels. It says that there are tens of thousands of angels that accompanied the giving of the law at Sinai. We have come to the whole crew. The whole army of them. They're the messengers, the holy angels of God who attended the giving of the law. Listen, who sang and rejoiced when Messiah was born? The angels. Who do we sing about roared when Jesus rose from the dead? The angels, which is true. If you read the Psalms, you know, lift up your gates, so you get the heads, so your gates be lifted up, everyone lives indoors. The King of Glory is coming in. We weren't there for that, but the angels were. The King of Glory is coming back. Make the gates of heaven bigger because Jesus is coming home. We are in the company of the whole holy army of angels in honouring and worshipping Jesus, our master. We've come to the general assembly. That's the whole assembly, the whole thing. All of Israel was gathered at Sinai, every single one of them, to be given the law. We have come to the general assembly of, the, of, of God. It's the whole people of God from all places and all time, including the ones who have not even perhaps yet been born. It's that assembly. It's that big. It's the church of the firstborn. I've put a capital F there, enrolled in heaven. It's the church of Jesus because he is the firstborn. You can read it again and again in Scripture. In Colossians it says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not the firstborn of creation, not a created being. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the one who has firstborn rights to the home. We have got some grammar. Be quiet, I tell you. It's not right, not proper, not fair. Anybody else watch Paul Doc? We do. On a Monday. <laughs> He's the firstborn of a whole creation. He has firstborn rights over the whole cosmos. It all belongs to him. Then it says in Colossians 2, he's the firstborn from the dead. The first of a new race of human beings who've been, who've been through death and are raised to eternal life. And because he's gone and he's firstborn, guess what? We can inherit the same. We find the same in Revelation 1.5. In Hebrews 1, 6, he's just simply called God's firstborn. He has the preeminence. But in him, we are all sons and co-heirs of God. Our names are written in his book. We are enrolled in heaven. Amen. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So when the books of deeds are opened, well, this person did well, didn't do well, there's another book opened. It's the Lamb's book of life. And those whose names are written in his book Join him in his eternal kingdom. We're in Jesus, the firstborn, and we inherit with him. I like this stuff. It's the church of the firstborn. But we've also come to God, the judge of all. We're accepted through the blood of Jesus, yet we as Christians are still responsible and accountable to the Lord. If you think I'm making it up, check out the teaching of Jesus. He's the master and we are servants, and we can do well or we may not do well. As servants of our master. God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are the saints, whether they lived and died before or since the coming of Jesus, they are with him. To die is to be with the Lord, awaiting the day of resurrection. So they are as yet in heaven spirits or souls. 
They're pictured in Revelation 6, the souls of martyrs crying out to the Lord for final vindication, for the, their final inheritance. So the Bible, by the way, uses the word soul and spirit interchangeably to describe what we are when we don't have a body anymore. Yeah. All right? It's the non-physical reality of what it is to be human, yet we are designed to live in a physical body. That's what resurrection's about. We don't get to be a soul or a spirit forever. I'm sorry if you've heard that from somebody. That's heresy. We get a body, like Jesus has got a body, right? Yes. We get a body, a real body, in the resurrection. Yeah. But soul in the Bible is also simply used to being a living human being. By the way, when they do SOS, SOS save our souls, do so they want someone to preach the gospel to them or do they want to be rescued by another boat? It's, it's save our beings, our human beings, our persons. Yes? And soul sometimes means what you are if you die, you're still a soul, or it just means you're a living human being. And in the long run, we will all again because of Jesus' resurrection being enacted in us on the last day, we will again be living human beings. Amen. But a better Amen. model than this one. Yes. Amen. This one's getting old. I'm tired. <laughs> we are children of God. We are ch citizens of heaven. We are members of the body of Christ. Let me just give you a bit more scripture here. Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're both a citizen and a family member, yeah. a child of God. In Philippians, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. We are gathered not to Sinai, but to Zion, to this heavenly reality of the throne room of God and the company of God's people. We're not under law, we're under grace. But this is corporate. It's not about me, my, I here. And I know a lot of the way that gospel is preached and a lot of the way that a lot of ministries organize themselves, it's, it's about, you know, I'll talk to you and you're going to get blessing and you're going to be favored. I saw an advert on the internet. I was looking for something else, but I saw an advert on the internet the other day. Church name, you know, special meeting, sign up for your personal prophecies. And I thought, yeah, yeah, hmm, yeah, you're right, hmm. Is it, all, is it really all about me, 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 me? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. You're missing something. Yes. Let me show you this illustration again. Truth, Bible truth, is both personal and corporate. And you must not let go of one or the other. Yes. Let me give the illustration again. Paul writes in two different places. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. In another place he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You need to believe both. Yes. With all of your heart. Yes. Truth is personal and corporate. So, the new covenant is personal and it is corporate. There are things that only work because we are together. You can't have it on your own. It doesn't work just for you. Promises which you cannot inherit as an individual. They have to be inherited together, corporately, as a family of God. And Christianity, the whole thing. Is corporate. It's not merely personal. Jesus is my saviour, but he's also, biblically, the saviour of the body, the church, and he's also potentially still the saviour of the world. We don't know how many yet still are going to find him yeah. through the gospel of grace. The New Testament is not, written to, it's not written to me, it's written to us. Most times in the New Testament, when you read the word you, it is plural, yeah. not personal. Plural. 
But most importantly, this morning, motoring through here, we are gathered to Jesus. That's not a, oh, by the way, you know, Jesus as well. This is like, no, this is the big deal. Much as I might get excited by the truth of the church and the corporate body of Christ, this is the bigger deal. We are gathered to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Jesus. I continue to be really disturbed by how much of modern Christianity is not Christ-centered. There's a lot of religion, a lot of jargon, a lot of talk, and God gets mentioned fairly often, but Jesus quite rarely by some people. I want to say to you this morning that Jesus must be front and center, first and last. If what you hear is not really Basically, centrally about Jesus, it's not the gospel. It's something else. And if someone talks about a gospel of this or a gospel of that, that's not the real deal. The gospel is the good news of God concerning his son, Romans 1 verse 2, or thereabouts. The gospel of God concerning his son. He's put forward his son Jesus. Trust him, believe in him. Obey him, listen to him. He's the image of God because he's a man who is still God. This is all about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. The Bible's about Jesus. The church is about Jesus. The Christian life is about Jesus. I use that as a measuring stick, you know, to measure all kinds of things that claim my time. The video clip that gets circulated, the ministry event that's publicized, you know, the they come to this meeting, come to that meeting. Is Jesus front and center? I, get, I see invitations to things, and I'm not even sure whether, they are, whether they're telling me it's Christian. It could, be all kind, it could be any kind of religion, the way that some, some kind of come to our meeting things are advertised. It could be anything. It's just kind of religious. Jesus, front and center, first and last. Oh, but people get offended then. So? <laughs> Isn't it a glorious thing to be mistreated for his name's sake? His name's sake? If you don't use his name, sure people will be kinder to you. They'll let you off. Oh, you're just one of those religions. Okay, no, 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 we're just one of those religions. We are the people of Christ Jesus. So I look at stuff and I evaluate and say, is his name honoured? Is our Saviour and King being celebrated in this preaching and teaching? Is this about Jesus or is it something else? And by the way, false gospels, false teaching was around in the time of the apostles before they died. So the very letters of Peter and uh, Paul and John address false teaching which was happening right then. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. What happens today happened then, and it's written about in the book. The warnings are all there. The examples are all there. It's all about Jesus, front and center, first and last. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. I'm so glad it's the new covenant. It's much better than the old one. Do you want to live under the old one? No. Anybody done anything that's worthy of being stoned yet? Mm Mm-hmm. You want to be under the law? 
Circumcision for many is just the start. My goodness. The book of Hebrews makes this point again and again. Jesus is better. It's a better covenant. I've got to remove myself over here, and if I have to move, I'll go over there. <laughs> I picked up a little book, not the world's best commentary on Hebrews, but I love the way that this guy, his name's Sergon, splits up Hebrews into seven great statements about Jesus. It's a bit like the seven I am's of John's Gospel. Seven things that Hebrews says. I could say that there's an eighth one, but never mind. He's the captain of our salvation. In Hebrews 2. He's our great high priest in Hebrews 4. He's the forerunner, the one who's made the way ahead of us. This is how to do it. This is how to live it in Hebrews 6. He's the surety, the the down payment, the deposit, the guarantee of a better covenant in Hebrews 7. He's the veil. He's himself. When the veil was torn, when Jesus died, his body was torn so that we might come through the broken body of Jesus into the very presence of God the Father. The veil was torn that we might enter in to the very heart and hands and arms of God. He's the author and finisher of our faith. I didn't preach that up that much when I did. I know some of you really got hold of it. He's started. He's going to finish it. He's the author and finisher. Many of us are good at starting things but not very good at finishing them. There are corners of my house I haven't finished painting yet and we've been in there five years. There's an admission for you. Very good at starting things, not so good at finishing them. Jesus is as good at finishing things as he's at starting them. So Paul can say, I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. He's able to finish what he started. In another place, it says, He who began a good work in you will continue it today of Jesus Christ. He'll finish what he started. Is that encouraging to you when you're weak and trembling and Life seems to be pretty shaky. Well, we'll come to shaky in a minute. <laughs> He's the mediator of the new covenant. The one who made it, the one who dispenses it. The one who stands as the go-between between the holy God and, 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 and foolish, stupid sinners. And he mediates a new covenant so that they can receive all the help of heaven through him, because of him, because of who he is and what he's done. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And then in Hebrews 13, there's one more in uh, It'll be later in the summer. The sanctifier of his people. Jesus has made the new covenants greater, better than law. His sacrifice, his atoning. Oh, I've gone off. No, I'm back on. His sacrifice, his atoning blood. Now, let me explain the word blood. When you read about Jesus' blood, you don't even need to imagine like one old hymn does, a bit, oh, it's really gruesome. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty state. It's like, no, there isn't. There really isn't a fountain in heaven like that. Right? There just isn't, trust me. It's very poetic language. The reality is that what Jesus did on the cross in his body and by the shedding of his blood is so powerful, it forged a new relationship between God and man, called a new covenant, and his blood has atoned. It has put away our sin forever. That's why we talk about this power in the blood. His covenant provides the full remedy against sin. 
Not just mercy and forgiveness, but grace and enabling. See, some people think, oh, mercy and grace are the same thing. Well, why do you find so many verses, particularly in the New Testament, would say mercy and grace be yours? Well, why don't you use one word, Paul? What's the matter with you? Isn't that synonymous? No, it's not. Mercy deals with who you are, what you are, what you've done, brings you forgiveness, brings you acceptance. Yep. Grace empowers you and enables you to be the person you should have been. <laughs> and you're now, you're now pushed forward by the grace of God and by the help of the Spirit to go and be the human being that God designed you to be, not the one you got lost being. Yeah. That's grace. And if you don't preach positive grace, you're left with nothing more than, than a form of Catholicism. Oh, you've done it again. Go and do this. God bless you. Oh, you've done it again. God bless you. You're forgiven. Oh, you've done it again. God bless you. You're forgiven. I said last week, or I don't know if I'm going to say it in a moment. It might be in my notes yet. But Jesus is not our confessor priest. He's the giver of grace. Grace changes us. The old Puritan John Owen said, I won't give it to you in his kind of King, uh, uh, Queen Elizabethan English. If grace does not change him, and I don't know what grace does. It changes us, and it continues to change us, because grace is positive, enabling work of God in us by his hand from his heart. What Jesus has won for us and begun in us, he will complete. He's the center, the source, the object of our faith. And we mustn't just sing this. We need to declare it and live it. All right? Yeah. Jesus at the center of it all. Yeah. This new covenant, let me take you back to something that Jesus said and Paul quotes in, Hebrew, in 1 Corinthians 11. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's a powerful statement. You sold in a cup of wine. Would have been dark red wine. Would have been pretty strong wine. They aged wine in goatskins. That would be interesting. Most of our wine gets oaked in casks and oak casks and gets an oaky flavour. What does wine taste like when it's been in a goatskin for a few months? I've no idea. Jesus was holding a cup of wine and he said, "This cup." is the new covenant in my blood. Well, it, it isn't. It's just a cup of wine. But he's saying, no, 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 this represents... My blood will bring you into a new covenant. And whenever you raise that cup of wine, you say, I'm in the new covenant because of what Jesus has done for me. That's unchanging. That, that cannot be changed. Do you understand? Because he's done it. Does he undo it? No, he doesn't undo it. The new covenant was made in and by the blood, the atoning suffering of death of the Lord Jesus. And despite the titles in our Bibles, the new covenant isn't actually a book, it's Jesus himself. These are, these are books from Matthew onwards about the new covenant, but the new covenant is really Jesus himself. Jesus is the mediator of the new and better covenant. We're members of that covenant by the will and wisdom of grace and God. He calls us to it, he renews us, he changes us, he reforms us. God has saved us by his grace, simply through faith. And Sunday by Sunday, most Sundays here, we celebrate the new covenant in Jesus' body and blood by taking again the emblems of his body and blood. But the scripture here in Hebrews goes further and talks about the sprinkled blood. Sprinkled blood, leave it there for a minute. When the law was given, now this gets gruesome, 
When the law was given and the large animal was sacrificed and they burned the animal's body on the altar and half the blood was poured out, the other half was put in a basin and Moses went round and sprinkled the blood on the people and on the book of the law, the law of God. The law was sprinkled and they were (laughs) sprinkled. Anybody up for that? About two hours later, the flies. The comparison here is made in Hebrews 12. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to sprinkle blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, the subject about the blood of Jesus is very big in Hebrews 8 and 9, and I could have gone back there again. But Paul mentions it in Hebrews 10, just to pick it up again, not far behind where we are now. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, draw near to God through Jesus, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I don't think the heart sprinkled clean is by water. I think it's the blood of Jesus. Bodies washed with pure water, well, you're baptized, so maybe you need to freshen up again, but... I've told you before a number of times that sometimes when I stand in the chair, I think again about being cleansed by the blood and the love of Christ. And I just thank God that I can wash my body, but you've washed me from my sins. Yes. Peter says this, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, interestingly, see the Old Testament people had to stand there, the law was read to them, the law was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, and then they were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. So what is Peter saying? You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to seal you into this covenant, which is to obey Jesus Christ. Not the law of Moses, Jesus himself. By his blood our hearts are sprinkled and cleansed, from an evil conscience, we are sealed to him so that we are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit and obey Jesus Christ. Jesus saves and separates his people from their sins. He doesn't just go on forgiving them as they continue to live the same way they always did. He's our saviour, not just a confessional priest. You cannot have Jesus on your own terms. Just as Israel was sealed to the law by sprinkled blood... So, you and I are sealed to him and to his covenant by his blood. We are not our own. We belong to him. Let me read something to you from 1 Corinthians 6. I didn't put it up on the screen. Plea, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? Now listen to this verse. I remember, really, when the first time I read it, I went, What? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Put that together. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. How many people in the world today are totally convinced, I'm my own person, I can make my own choices, I can do what I like. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, no. No, you can't. You are not your own. 
You've been bought by Jesus. Amen. At what price? His blood. That's where the word redeemed comes from. He has bought us. Not just paid the price for our freedom. He's bought us to himself. We once were slaves of sin. We are now slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. There isn't some freedom thing in between. Well, I'm free to do what I like. That is not true. It is simply not true. You're not your own. Your life isn't your own. You're not your own man or your own woman. You've been redeemed and ransomed. You belong to him, body and soul. <clears throat> now, neither the shedding of Jesus' blood nor the sprinkling of blood happens again and again. <clears throat> when we sin, we don't ask Jesus to get, pay up some more blood. We're forgiven on the basis of the blood he already shed. Yeah? Yes. Right. And same with sprinkling. Jesus doesn't need to, to, to bleed more. It's done. It's over. It's complete. It's been transacted. Once for all sin, for all time. So please don't go beyond scripture with all kinds of imaginations like one or two old hymns about the blood of Jesus. We don't sprinkle it. And I, I thank God for the people who prayed for me over the years as a preacher and so on. But if I'm not actually covered by the blood of Jesus, I'm now still a hellbound sinner, okay? You know, I can't be more or less covered by the blood of Jesus than I am because I'm either in the new covenant or I'm not. We don't use his blood. It's not available to us to do things with like faith tricks, magic tricks. It's not there. And I have to admit to you that some old hymns and songs go well beyond the scripture in what they say about the blood of Jesus, which is a very precious topic, but sometimes some of the stuff's got too imaginative and it's gone beyond scripture. Sprinkled blood. You have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to seal you to himself. And it's to obedience to him. Not the law, to him. But he also says here that the blood speaks. Now that's even scarier. His blood speaks better than Abel's blood. Now some of you will know, some might not know. Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. You can read it in Genesis 4. They both came and offered sacrifices to God. Abel was accepted. Cain was rejected. Cain got angry and bitter and all the rest of it. And God warned Cain about his attitude and told him that sin was lurking, wanted to grab him. But Cain continued in his attitude, which I understand to be firstly towards God. He was bitter and resentful towards God and then also his brother Abel. And Cain didn't listen, didn't repent and killed his brother Abel. And the scripture says there in Genesis 4, Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice against his murderous brother. God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Jesus' blood speaks of our present forgiveness, our cleansing, and our acceptance. It also speaks of our future inheritance in him. Let me give you an illustration. Abel's blood, to sum it up in one word, cried justice. Jesus' blood, in one word, cries grace. Grace. In fact, that's how the Weymouth New Testament writes it. We've come to Jesus, the negotiator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks in more gracious tongues than that of Abel. That's sweet, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus' blood was the price and is the ground of all God's grace towards us. We never deserve, we never deserve anything. That's really bad grammar, David, but I can't undo it now. <laughs> 
We never deserve anything. We never earned anything. The grounds of grace is that Christ has died for us. Our appeal to God for mercy and grace isn't because I desperately need it or I deserve it or anything else. It doesn't matter how much you deserve, you, you think you need it or whether or not you think you deserve it. It's because Jesus has purchased grace for you at his cross. Grace for our past, our present and our future. Now there's a warning. The comparison between Sinai and Zion having been made, here's the application and instruction. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that should be capital H for God really, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Here is another see to it. There's been a few of them in this chapter. All right? We looked at see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and by it many be defiled. The root of bitterness was there in Abel, Cain rather, right? Bitter because God rejected him, bitter towards his brother, became a murderer. Now, it's this. See to it, you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? God. God is speaking. In fact, in Hebrews 12, a lot of the previous chapters of Hebrews all get kind of pushed up together. It's revisiting things that are all been said. So at the beginning of Hebrews 1, we read, Right at the beginning of the book, if you've got a Bible, you can flip back. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. God has spoken by the prophets before Jesus came. God has spoken in his Son when he came. That's why for me... The most precious words in all the Bible are the words of Jesus. Yes. Jesus speaking, God speaking directly in his Son. The scriptures speak to us concerning the Lord and his ways and his wisdom. The God yet speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. We are Pentecostals, Charismatics. We believe that the Spirit isn't gone dumb or he hasn't put up shop. He still speaks, but in accordance with the scriptures which he's already spoken. And even the Christ's blood is pictured here as speaking. And the warning is, see to it, you do not refuse him who speaks to you from heaven. It picks up from Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore we must give the more, the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels, that's the giving of the law, prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and which was confirmed to us by those who heard him? If those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Do not refuse him who speaks. Now, there's different layers and ways that we don't listen. You can just, I'm not listening. Yeah? It's called stiffen your neck. You turn your head away, you do that, la, 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 la. You can just refuse to take it in. You can listen, but refuse to obey. Even putting it off to another time. 
to act. Disobedience to his word is refusal of his voice too. Jesus talked about two sons. The father said to him, would you go and do so and so for me? The first son said, I'll do it. We wouldn't. The one said, no, I'm not doing it. Then he, then he repented. He said, he went and did it. Which of them did the father's will? The one who actually did it. So um, we're not saying here you've got to have a perfect first reaction every time. But faith is about doing what God gives us to do. Not just thinking about it and saying, well, I've heard that many times. Maybe you have. Maybe it's time we did it. See, what you believe, you live. What you really believe, you will live. You can say, I believe this and I believe that, I believe that, but when the test comes, do I choose this or this? Or, well, what you really believe is what you will live. The attitude of heart, I believe this is according to the teaching of Jesus when he talks about the heart is this and the heart is that. Your attitude of heart will be read in actions. You say, well, that's not what I'm really like. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what you really do. Yeah? Your attitude of heart will be seen in actions. See to it you do not refuse him who is speaking. Let me open up again to you here what we ought to mean by the word backsliding. Anybody heard the word backsliding? Yeah. Yeah. He's a backslidden Christian. Yeah. That, my dear friends, is a backsliding heifer. It is refusing to be pulled through that gate. No matter how many men get on the rope. Somebody I know, used to know very well, had a, a calf that did that, and he pulled too hard and broke the calf's neck. It broke his heart to, to do that to one of his, his own uh, uh, cattle. Backsliding heifer. Backsliding doesn't mean just to wander off to lose the way. It is to stubbornly resist. It's dig your heels in, stiffen your neck and body, refuse to be led and guided by God, by his word, and by those he appoints as leaders. The root of sin is pride and rebellion. That's the root of it. That's how it started. And sin masquerades as weakness. Oh, I can't. Oh, I'm so Oh, dear. Oh. It claims your pity. But an unbelieving heart is, according to the words of Jesus, an unbelieving heart is actually evil and wicked. Again and again in those wilderness years, the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord and against Moses, refusing to listen to him, despite being shocked to the core of their souls at Sinai. When the push came to shove, when, when, when instruction became obedience, they hardened their hearts. And behaved like a backsliding heifer. And God used those words about them. Both through Moses and through the prophets. It went very badly for those people. How much more should we listen to the Lord and obey him. And live in his grace. Who's spoken to us. Not now by his own son. And has given us both his word and his spirit. So the Bible goes on to talk about the shaking. This is nothing to do with rock and roll. His voice shook the earth then. God spoke from Sinai and, and the, the place was shaking. And the people went, ah! And even most of well, I'm scared too, but I suppose I'd better go then. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, 
but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. God is still in the shaking business, but it's no longer one mountain in the Sinai Desert. God is now shaking the nations. You can read that in the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah and Haggai. The day will come, the time will come when he will have finished shaking the nations and he will shake the whole cosmos, the whole of creation. So we need to understand our times, the times we live in. We live in a time of shaking. Governments are shaky and, uh, you know, you look at the people in charge in some countries, you go, oh my, what? But the day will come when God will shake everything so that what remains is really him and his kingdom and his children. People can set their hearts on a, you know, a settled, peaceful, utopian society, whether they're socialist or capitalist. But I don't see anything like that kind of perfect world happening until Jesus returns and remakes it. Amen. I don't believe that's in the Bible to... to to put your hope this side of his return for that to come. When he comes, he will establish his eternal and glorious kingdom. Amen. Yet once more denotes the removing of the things which can be shaken and created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. When all that men rely upon has been shaken down, God, the eternal rock, will remain and his purpose and his kingdom will stand forever. One day, not just Mount Sinai will be on fire, but the whole earth will be on fire. We can read it in 2 Peter. When this creation is finally shaken and set ablaze, we, if we're children of God, will receive a kingdom which cannot be even shaken, let alone destroyed. Amen. The eternal kingdom of our Father and of His Son and Messiah Jesus. One of the lovely phrases that Jesus puts in in the middle of his teaching about the last things is, then shall the righteous shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Amen. It's like, what? We get to shine that bright? Wonderful. Then there's a promise. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Other versions say, let us have grace. I think the two apply by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Paul makes two points there. Let us have grace and be grateful to the Lord. And Different versions put it in different ways. I, listen, both are true. When you have God's grace in your heart, when you, you have a knowledge that you're being supplied and maintained and, and sustained and empowered by the grace of God, guess what? You ain't off grateful. In fact, ungratefulness is a sign of missed grace. Grumbling and complaining are a dipstick to, you need to get some more grace. You need to know who you are and who God is and what he's done for you and you need to be wrapped more in his fatherhood and in the, the leadership of our Lord Jesus. You need to get a hold of the truth there and get some grace. Grace always produces graciousness towards other people and gratitude to God. 
Let us serve the Lord with reverence and awe. To serve the Lord means again and again in every circumstance of life we're choosing his way, not the world's way. We're choosing passion for his name over passing pleasures and even prosperity if it costs us the passion for his name. Worship, singing songs is good, but it's no substitute for obedience. The prophet said, Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Is it just a possibility that we could be good at worshipping but not very good at obeying? Let us serve the Lord with reverence and awe. That's not just in 20 minutes of worship, half an hour, whatever. That's like Monday morning, cooking the tea, dealing with the kids, serving the Lord. I said before to you, can I say it again a few times yet? We get put off by the word holiness. I'm going to define it very simply. It's a Godward life. It's a life lived by his supply for his glory. Let us serve the Lord. In both of those we see that Godward life. Received grace, gratefulness, reverence, or obedience. And to wrap it up, it's... You don't need me to tell you that the, the, our political situation here, Europe, America, and so on, and, and our societies are quite shaky just now with unstable governments, uncertain future, unknown circumstances. Nations are being shaken. And we're going to live through that. But one day, the very fabric of the universe is going to be shaken. And out of the dispersal and removal of that order that we know and we think is so certain, you know, the... There's the sun and the world goes around the sun and the moon goes around the earth and it's, it's just unchangeable. It's going to be like that till it's going to be that like that till kingdom come. Let me finish the sentence for you. When God's kingdom comes, it all changes. Yes. What it will entirely look like, I've no idea. But the whole cosmos must be renewed so that God is glorified in every single atom of his creation. We are to receive that glorious kingdom to us which can't be shaken. So let us have grace. Let us be grateful and obedient. Serve the Lord with reverence and awe. The last statement of Hebrews 12 is so significant. I'm taking next Sunday morning just to deal with that sentence. For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. So let me sum up before we break bread together. We haven't come to Sinai. <gasps> We've come to Zion. We've come to God's assembly. To this great corporate people of God from all time, which is really, the whole thing is called the Church of Jesus Messiah. Do you know Israel was the church in the wilderness? Whose church? No, Jesus' church. We're not under law, but under grace. Does that mean, therefore, let's carry on sinning because we're not under law? No! Let's get hold of grace! And live a new life. That's the appeal of Romans. No, we don't go back to what we've died to, to what's been cut off from us. We treat that as dead and live for God. We've come to Jesus. Do you know that the Lord is speaking to you? And how, how is he speaking to you in recent times? What is he saying to you? Are you receiving his word 
or actually refusing it. See to it. It's one of those see to it things. See to it. It comes down to an individual response and choice. I'm going to see to it that I listen and take it to heart and put it into action. I'm going to see to it. I'm going to make it so, as they used to say on, on Star Trek. Make it so. You see, if we live hearing stuff but never doing it, we're deceiving ourselves. We think, I know, I know all the stuff. I'm, I'm good. I know it all. Knowledge without obedience becomes, becomes, an even, it becomes even more of a judgment on us in a way. You knew it and didn't do it. So make sure we're seeing to it that we're listening, receiving his word, and then figuring out by his grace how to put it into action. I'm blessed that someone said to me this morning that, that for them life's changed quite a bit since last Sunday through what the Lord said to them there. That's, that's really good. At uh, some point, a good few weeks' time when we get to Hebrews 13, I want to talk about joy and grief for leaders, Christian pastors, all right? Paul says, uh, do this so it will be a joy for them, not a grief. And I'm going to take a few minutes to take, tell you what pastors are joyful over and what they grieve over. All right? you can put, I don't know when, when exactly in the summer, but it will be sometime. What changes are you facing and acting upon because you know he's spoken to you? Yet, see, even stuff maybe that you think, well, I did it before, it didn't work. There's a scripture for that. Lord, we've toiled all night. We've fished all night and we caught nothing. Yep, but cost you net over there. Yet, according to your word, we'll do it. Now that time, it worked. Their fisherman skills weren't lacking. What they needed was the grace of God upon them. The hand of God upon them to make it happen. And sometimes we try to do stuff in our own strength. We think we know how to do this, we know how to do We wonder why it doesn't work, why it doesn't click, connect. Because we need the grace of God. See to it that you get grace. See to it that you get grace, so that you may serve him with acceptably awe and fear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Again, we humble our hearts before you. You have bought us, you have redeemed us, you've ransomed us, not just to put us out there to go and wander off and do what we think, but to be brought into your way, to be disciples of Christ, to learn the wisdom of how to live by the grace of God for the glory of God. So we're here, Lord, to be instructed. We're here for our feet to be guided. We're here for our minds to be instructed and our hearts to be drawn out in obedience to you. We can sometimes talk a lot about what is in or not in our hearts. But Lord Jesus, you told us plainly our hearts are seen in our actions. So we pray that our whole way of life may truly reveal and demonstrate the things we believe about you, your greatness, the power of your atoning sacrifice for us, the, the reality of your life now being poured into us. So we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. 
We want to conform to the truth more and more. We don't want to visit it, look at it, walk away, forget it. We want to be focused on the things that are true and real because one day all of this is coming down. The whole thing. Not just a little temporary earthquake here or there. The whole cosmos is going to be shaken in such a profound way that what is, what is brought out of that is and completely new. And then, according to your promise, Lord Jesus, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Help us to live for the kingdom which cannot be shaken and can never be removed. Help us to treat with some disdain and care things which are just temporary and passing. We make the best use of them at the time, but those are not where our hearts are because we could, they can so easily go. We pray for increased wisdom to live as the children of God in a shaky society. Lights in a dark place in many ways. Come and fill us, Lord, with your truth. With your truth so that we really believe it. And we actually even begin to live it too. For Jesus' name to be honoured, we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. We have.